www.ifp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking questions from God's Word, maybe a particular passage you've been studied and you're challenged with or an issue in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on. All you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 843-525-1859. We also broadcast around the world through the Internet, and our U.S. listeners can use 1-877-WAGP-980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. You can also email us here directly into the studio. We have a lot of Internet listeners who listen Uh, Some live, some who listen after the show, but they email their questions in here. And uh, the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here on this day. It is indeed, Pastor, and we already have our first live caller on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, thanks for calling today. How can we help? Uh, Pastor, I've been dealing with a question for a couple years now, and I haven't found the answer in Scripture. Uh, I was wondering if you can guide me a little bit on this. Uh, The question is, being that we all sin, and the people who say they don't sin are a liar, and it, it, it has to do with when we go to heaven. And the question is, um, do we retain our memory? because our memory would retain our sins, and I know there's no sin in heaven. Well, you're right. There is no sin in heaven. In in a resurrected body, some of the uh, filthy thoughts that are flesh, even independent of the evil one and his direct attacks, or the world that would try to influence us in the way we think, because there are three forces that wage war against the believer. The world the flesh, and the devil. The world meaning the world system. And so Paul reminds us that the prince of the power of the air is now working in the sons of disobedience, that he's energizing the world system. Satan himself directly attacks. And then there are many things that we do that we don't need Satan's help on. We can be all original with because we have our own fallen sinful nature. And James talks about how a man is carried away by his own sinful lust. When we are in heaven, the flesh is gone. Uh, We are in a resurrected body where our salvation is completed. Uh, We don't yet know that. There is a salvation now, but salvation future dimension. Uh, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved as I progress in my walk with the Lord from the power of sin. We typically call that sanctification. And someday 
probably sooner than most of us realize, Jesus is going to come back or he's going to take us first by death and I'll ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin. That's called glorification. Uh, So in a glorified body, we have no flesh. And so there's no ability to conjure up the evil of the past life. Number two, the devil will be bound for a thousand years uh, during the millennial reign. And then at the end of the thousand years, the Bible teaches that he is forever cast into the lake of fire. And so uh, the devil won't be around to tempt or to wage war any longer against believers. And he is the one, the prince of the power of the air, who's energizing the world system. So no, there's going to be a purity and a holiness in the presence of God that none of us have ever known, but we will know in the presence of God in in heaven. Uh, That's a great question. I appreciate you calling today and asking it. Does that help? Yes, uh, but, you know, we also, uh, we were told that that, um, you'll be with your loved one in heaven, you'll meet your wife again, and your your parents or your loved ones, if they are... You know, children of God and are saved like that. But, you know, it, it, it helps explain it deeper to me. Uh, is there any particular scripture that you know of? that? Well, there's, you know, like I say, there's a number of passages that when brought together, I think you can come to that conclusion. Uh, the fact that we no longer have a sin nature is Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We get a glorified body. So if the sin nature, the flesh, is what produces sinful thoughts and sinful tendencies, and James teaches that that can happen totally independently of any attack on the devil. Sometimes people say, well, like Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. And well, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the devil doesn't have anything to do at all with our sin. Uh, we simply on our own, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to flesh. Where does lust come from? Well, Paul tells us Galatians five nineteen to 21, it comes from the flesh. Uh, the deeds of the flesh are evident. It's the fallen sinful nature within. And so Philippians 3, 20 and 21 indicates that we get a resurrected body and there is no longer a sinful nature. We're made into Christ likeness. Then there's nothing that can drag us away again into those uh, sinful acts, those sinful deeds. My salvation is completed. Some people says, well, say that, well, that takes away free will. No, it doesn't. Um, When we make a decision for Christ, we make an eternal decision for Christ. Some people think, well, you know, if uh, if Satan fell from heaven, then maybe um, I can fall from heaven when I get there and I could come up with some sinful, you know, desire. No, Satan had a testing period. He chose as Lucifer, the son of the morning star to rebel against God, and he made his choice. Well, when you choose for Christ, you choose to take upon yourself an eternal destiny and eternal ramifications come with that destiny. And that means the completeness of our salvation where we are forever sealed in the presence of God and will never, ever, ever be able to sin again. Now, there is um, 
a question that sometimes people ask about, well, what about, you know, okay, I might not be able to have sinful thoughts and commit acts of sin, but what about my past life? Can I still think about my past life? Well, I don't think that's necessarily impossible. There are people who are... um, uh, in heaven, in the Revelation, uh, if you read the 6th and 7th chapters who are pleading with God, God, how much longer? How much longer are you going to allow the persecution of your saints upon the earth? These are tribulation saints who had already been killed, beheaded for the faith, and were in the presence of the Lord, still awaiting their resurrected body, but still uh, they're in the presence of the Lord, conscious, praising the Lord, but also pleading with God, how much longer? How much longer, God? So they can remember their past life. But when we do it, we will do it with a sense of purity, with a sense of holiness. Some think, well, you know, if I have to remember my past life, that will make heaven like hell. You know, if I have a, you know, a a friend, a best friend who rejected Christ and I don't see him there, well, you know, you will be like the Lord. And God will, though we're not obviously omniscient, but, you know, God can think of lost people with a pure sense of compassion and love, but also with a deep sense of justice. Some people think, well, the former memories will be erased, and I don't think you can really build a dogmatic case for that. But I can say this with dogmatism. You will not be able to sin in heaven. And uh, if you want to really study that in detail, you might want to consider taking my course on anthropology. Uh, The anthropology is a term that, you know, the secularists secularists have stolen in the last hundred years or so, um, but it's really from the realm of theology. Uh, The initial study of anthropology is the study of man as it relates to what God reveals in Scripture. And so we kind of go through, I taught it over 15 weeks. That's on the website at searchthescriptures.org, the entire course. And if you really want a full-blown answer, that's where I would direct you because I go through all of this in tremendous detail. Appreciate that question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And uh, in a vein uh, not too distant from where we just asked the last question, Somebody in my Sunday school asked a while back, if it's true that God cannot be in the presence of sin, how was the devil able to come before him and ask permission to tempt Job? Well, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Um, You know, God is not going to allow anything into his heaven to defile it, but he's talking about the final heaven that's cleansed, uh, which is kind of interesting when you think about it because uh, the scripture speaks uh, in Genesis, in the beginning, Barashit uh, bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, the heavens and the earth. Um, and so when you look at this verse and you actually do an analysis of it, it's kind of startling. In the beginning, God, and it's actually Elohim's, it's plural, uh, but then he uses a singular verse, um, in the beginning, plural God created singular verse, which is interesting because the Bible affirms the triunity of God. And even in the opening verse of the Bible, in one sense, the doctrine of the Trinity is inferred. And then it says the heavens and the earth. And so you have the heavens, which is a dual here. In, in Hebrew, there's a word for singular, a form for singular, a form for two, and then there's a form for three or more. And this is a dual. 
And so in the initial creation of God, God created the dual, the heavens and the earth. But then the revelation, as well as 2 Corinthians, speaks of the final heaven, the third heaven that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that will be a place in which Satan nor any other evil being will be allowed. But there is a realm in which the devil was allowed uh, when, as you mentioned, um, he came into the presence of God in Job uh, and uh, asked if he can, you know, tempt uh, Job. And, and of course, God gives him permission. But that's not the final place. And the final place that God has created, uh, even the, the, the new Jerusalem, when it will come down, um, it will sit on a new heaven and a new earth. Um, so it will come down through a purified heaven onto a purified earth that Peter says in which righteousness dwells and the devil and all of his fallen angels will be eternally bound. So there will be no evil in heaven. Absolutely none. All right. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And as a follow-up to a question and comment that was made last week about uh, birth control, uh, we had mentioned that uh, uh, your wife was going to post uh, the position that uh, you and she take on birth control as far as uh, your interpretation of the Bible, what the Bible says. And that has now been added at her website under the uh, Frequently Asked Questions. Uh, her website is... Um, MFTH.org. Uh-huh, yeah. MFTH.org. So uh, anybody that was interested in that can go there and read all of it. Jason from Yuma, Arizona writes, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus is in the desert. Then in verse 5, it says, the devil took Jesus to the highest point on the temple, uh, one, how did the devil get him up there? I don't think the devil possessed supernatural powers such as God does. And two, wouldn't people have seen Jesus standing on the temple since it was in the city center? This reads like it's a literal description of a physical event, but I'm not understanding how it would have been physically executed. Thank you. Well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the devil or demons, the chief demon, of course, being the devil himself, Satan. He's given many different names in scripture. Uh, They are unlike humans. There is a supernatural dimension to what they are able to do. And so while angels, both holy and fallen, are not, say, omnipresent, they're not omniscient, they're not omnipotent, they are greater in form and power than man, the scripture indicates. And so we see angels in the book of Daniel chapter uh, 10 flying across the heavens. Uh, They have an ability that we do not have. I wouldn't call them, uh, you know, godlike powers, but they are of a supernatural nature. Just like when you and I are finally in our resurrected body, we will not be omnipotent. We will not be all-powerful, will not be omnipresent, but we will have powers that we do not have now. Because, for instance, as I mentioned to our (laughs) first caller, Philippians 3 indicates that we'll have a resurrected body like Christ. And so the Lord was, for instance, um, in the upper room, able to go through a room where all the doors were locked, and he, he just walked right through the wall. It was a real body that you could touch and feel. It was not a spirit body. He ate with it. And yet, on the other hand, he was able to go right through walls. And so even you and I, in our final resurrected body, will have power that we do not have now. So it is with the devil. Um, And so 
I think your question really originates with the nature and power that demons and Satan himself have, and they are much greater than men. If you want to really do, Jason from Yuma, a full study on this, I have a course on angelology, and I really divided it into two halves, uh, angels for us and angels against us. And I think I did it over 28 Wednesday nights, and I walked through what the Bible says about angels, how they are different from us, uh, someday, um, while man is for a short time made a little bit lower than the angels, someday we will be above the angels. In fact, we will actually even judge holy angels for the service that they've rendered to God's people. Paul tells us that, and he tells us it should be a motivation for us now to be able to deal with our own problems. Anyway, mm. that's a good question, but um, again, the devil and angels holy and fallen are far different from us. And then in terms of his being able to be on the temple and not being seen, I remember there's a passage where uh, it says the the God of this world, little G, has blinded. Uh, the eyes. Yeah. You know, again, it um, how how that was manifest, um, you know, we're, we're not told. Um, you know, again, uh, Luke 4, Matthew 4, the two places where the temptation is given and it's apparent that no one else saw them. And it might be that the Lord made himself invisible, just like Satan often appeared invisibly and is invisibly operating in the realm uh, in which we live. Uh, the Bible tells us that in Ephesians chapter six. So I, I'm not going to read into the text. God doesn't give us the details of the text, but it's apparent uh, that they were not visible and that people didn't say, hey, look up there in the corner of the temple. Who are those people up there? You know, so God doesn't give us those details. So I'm not going to tell you how it happened because I don't know. And no one else can answer that question for you. But I can say that God can manifest himself in many different ways. And if he wants someone to see, um, even the Emmaus Road disciples, when he walked with them, as described in Luke 24, they were literally walking down the road with the Lord Jesus, and they didn't know it was him until he broke the bread, and then their eyes were open. They said, oh, that's Jesus. So he can keep or reveal anything that he chooses to keep or reveal to us. All right. Leslie from Beaufort uh, says she heard a sermon here on this radio station in which the pastor said babies automatically go to heaven despite their inherited sin nature because they did not suppress the truth. Apparently, those who hear the truth and suppress it are the ones who are eternally punished. Does that include adults who have not heard the truth and therefore have not suppressed it? And if so, is that when Jesus will return when all adults have had the opportunity to accept or deny the truth. That might take a while. Well, um, let me just say, I, I'm not sure which pastor you were referring to, but most of the people that you hear on uh, 88.7 that we've chosen to broadcast are, are sound people, not that we necessarily agree with every jot and tittle of every single speaker. Lay that aside, most evangelical Bible-believing teachers have historically affirmed that Little children uh, do not die and go to hell, but they go into the presence of the Lord. And so you will often hear the phrase, an age of accountability. Uh, it's very foolish to try to come up with a number with an age. Some have said 12 because Jesus exhibited the ability to reason spiritual truth in the temple with the Pharisees. 
Um, I don't think it's 12. I think it could be eight for some kids. And, you know, it might be, it might be uh, nine for someone else. The Lord is wise enough not to give us a specific age. Had he said, well, it's 13 or it's 18, some of us wouldn't get serious with our kids until they approach that age. And so we need to be praying for our children, even in the womb, that they would find Christ as as Lord and Savior. But with that laid aside, the Bible does not have a verse that says children die and go to heaven. But there are many passages when put together, it clearly teaches that. And by the way, this is uh, one of the 10 most commonly asked questions that we address in the discovery class. And so we have a class at Community Bible Church. It's 45 weeks long and it's set up so someone can begin any week they want. They don't have to wait for it to turn around to week one. And we have about 110 new believers who are in there right now. It never ends because people come to Christ every week. And so someone could walk in this week at week 30 and then go to weeks 45 and then through 29 and get the whole course. And so we spend one session, only one session on this question, but uh, we have a handout for it and it has been taped. And so if you want a more complete answer, you could go online and listen to it or maybe consider coming to the class, which is interactive, which is really beneficial to people because you learn even more. Uh, But there are a number of texts put together like Matthew 18, where Jesus likens the kingdom of God to little children. In fact, he says, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck. So there is a childlike faith that a child has uh, that the Lord acknowledges. And so he will say in verse 10 of that chapter, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my father who's in heaven. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to little children, uh, Jesus never uses an untruth to teach a truth. So if that were not true, then Jesus would be using error to teach truth. But the one who is the truth teaches by truth. And so every illustration, every parable that Jesus gives has absolute truth in it that you can learn from and then apply in a broader sense to life. Uh, Children are not born innocent. They're born sinful. In sin did my mother conceive me. But God in his sovereignty, wishing that none should perish, you know, if some little three-month-old baby uh, dies of a, of a problem uh, or, you know, dies from some crib death, um, God doesn't send that little baby to burn in hell uh, because that child has not yet had the capability and capacity to understand and receive the gospel of God's son. Uh, interestingly, uh, Jonah who writes a book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, If you remember at the end of his little uh, uh, course that he took with the Lord, he's sitting under a, uh, under his little bush as it were. And he's an interesting prophet. He's uh, running from God in the first chapter. He's running towards God in the second chapter In the third chapter. He's running for God. And the last chapter he, he runs ahead of God 
And so the prodigal prophet who becomes the praying prophet, who becomes the preaching prophet at the end, he's the pouting prophet. And uh, he's all upset over his little temporal plant that God sends a worm to eat and it fades on him. And, And then God said to Jonah, here's the end of the book. Do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? He says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should not I have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand as well in their left hand, as well as many animals. It's an interesting phrase. When you look at Nineveh proper, archaeologists would argue that there was approximately 600,000 people who lived in Nineveh when Jonah went there to preach, which would really fit the biblical record in that he uses the term, the number here, 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. That's a Hebraism for little children. Uh, They don't know which hand is left and which hand is right yet. And yet God had compassion on them. And so again, God teaches truth with truth. And so I think you can affirm that little children go home to be with the Lord. But adults, you know, there comes a point where we are aware of our sin and we have choices to make. And so you could not say this of people who've never heard the plan of salvation. So we have two questions in the discovery class back to back that we teach. One is, what about people who've never heard the name of Christ? And the basic thrust of that question is they have been given truth through creation conscience. Every man has, but he has suppressed that truth that he understood. The second question is different. What about those who can't believe? And that deals with little children, aborted babies, miscarried babies and some that have been severely retarded, people who didn't have the capacity to understand and respond to the light they have. Um, So both of those questions are important. They're both in our Back to Basics series, and I I think they might be helpful to this caller. Let's go to the next question. We have a live caller who's been patiently waiting. We do indeed. Thanks for holding. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Hey, good morning. Thanks um, for calling. I've, I've, I've been reading about the Apostle Peter and fi- find him fascinating and confusing all at the same time. I mean, here's a man that when the Roman legions and Judas and the, the, the leaders of the temple came to arrest him, he cuts off Mount Kassir, and then he denies Christ three times. And then later he stands up and boldly preaches the Word of God in front of the Pharisees, and then again, Paul has to chastise him. He's he just a fascinating individual, and I'm just—he seems to flip-flop around a lot, but yet he was one of the greatest apostles. And also, you know, just the second part of this, and I just—I just want you to just, you know, if you could speak a little bit about Peter, but I'm also wondering how the Catholics came to believe that he was their first pope. Well, those are great questions. Uh, let me respond to the first. I, I preached a sermon once on the Spirit-filled life, and I did it by looking at the Apostle Peter. And I noted that whenever Peter was in the presence of Christ, uh, he had great boldness and did some great things for the Lord. Uh, when he got out of the presence of the Lord and put his eyes either on circumstances or was literally physically 
out of the presence of the Lord, he, he did some things that were n- maybe not so great. Um, and it was a reminder to me that under the new covenant, uh, we are now, when we come to faith in Christ, unlike Old Testament saints, and what you read in the Gospels really is Peter as an Old Testament saint. He's still under the old covenant. The new covenant is not initiated until Jesus dies on the cross. And so we celebrate that at the Lord's Supper. This is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant was enacted when Jesus shed his innocent blood. And the fruit of that covenant and the promise that was associated with it in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God would send the Spirit um, came on Pentecost. And not by accident. That was all beautifully pictured and foreshadowed in the Old Testament feast. Uh, Jesus died on Passover. Um, Our redemption was purchased on the day that the Jewish people who for several thousands of years had slaughtered, you know, their sheep um, in their homes and put the blood on the doorposts and the lentil. Um, And so he died on Passover, not by accident. He was buried on the feast of unleavened bread, uh, a picture of his sinlessness, the sin, sinless son of God. He was raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, which was the next day. Um, and the Feast of First Fruits then kicked off the Feast of Weeks. Uh, and that went for 49 days. And the 50th day was Pentecost, which was the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks when the Holy Spirit came. And so now from that point on, the moment a person believes, they receive God the Holy Spirit so that Christ says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He, he's with us. Uh, he, the Spirit is called also the Spirit of Christ in the Bible. And we're not surprised that, by that because the members of the Godhead in one respect really are inseparable. And so you can uh, build a case clearly from Scripture that you know, we're not only indwelt by the Spirit, we're also indwelt by Christ and even God the Father. Each member of the Godhead is affirmed as indwelling the believer. Lay that all aside. Um, Peter, you know, when he was in the presence of Christ, did great things for Christ, but when he got away from the Lord physically or put his heart away from the Lord via circumstances, then uh, his faith would often fail. But when you see him in Acts, he's a new covenant saint in the fullest sense, experiencing all the blessings of the new covenant. Uh, Popery, where does it come from? Uh, Well, you know, in Matthew 16, there's a text of scripture that uh, Roman Catholics would um, often use to build this case. If you remember, they're at a place called Caesarea Philip. Philippi, and it's a place where I've stood before, and you can still see on the side of that hill in stone some of the idols that um, were etched out at that place that were there in the day of the Lord Jesus. It was a place where men gave allegiance to all kinds of false gods, and it's there at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus said, who does the Son of Man say that I am? And And they said, meaning the apostles, uh, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter steps up and he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah. Why? Because the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, meaning you didn't figure this out on your own. 
but my Father who's in heaven, he's the one who revealed it to you. And so he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Um, The official translation of the Roman Catholic Church is the Latin Vulgate that was done by Jerome in the 4th century. And in Latin, there is not the same nuance that you have in the Greek New Testament as in reference to these two words. And so in Latin, it would read like this. And I say to you that you are Peter, meaning a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so that's how the Latin text reads. The Greek text would read like this. I say to you that you are Peter, meaning a stone, Petros, and upon this Petra, a different Greek word, this bedrock, I will build my church. And so the church was not built on Peter. It was built on Christ. No one can lay a foundation, Paul will write, other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Christ is the foundation upon which the church is built. But that fine distinction is not made in the Latin text. Uh, And so they start there. They go on to say, in terms of papal succession, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And they say, well, Peter is given the keys as the first pope, and with every successive pope, he passes those keys down. Well, what are keys for? Well, they're used to open things. And Peter was definitely given a place of leadership and authority and privilege, but he was not the first pope. Um, He opened the doors of the gospel and that he's the one who stands up on Pentecost and is the first to preach the gospel to the Jews. And he is the first to uh, bring the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So God uses Peter to open doors, but there's no idea here of papal succession. In fact, this whole authority of loosing and binding is extended to the whole church at two chapters later in Matthew 18. Uh, Peter himself will later write in 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. And so if Peter was the first pope, he certainly didn't know anything about it. So anyway, um, but there in my course on uh, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, which is also available at Search the Scriptures, uh, we deal with this. I get papers now almost every week, people who are taking the course, and there's books they have to read and papers they need to write. And I personally read the papers and critique them and give feedback and grade them. And so I'm excited that a number of people are taking these different courses that we offer as they work on a, a degree uh, through the Institute of Biblical Studies. Let's go to the next caller, Rick. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks Hello? for calling. Yeah, we're here. Go ahead. All right. How are you doing, Doc? Carl? Doing great. Thank oh. you. Okay, long time listener, first time caller. Okay, glad you a, called. I, I got a friend who say um he go to a church. He used to go to he a member of a church, but he stopped going and stopped going to another church. So I asked him, I said, "Well, you not a member that church you join? That you going to the other church in it? Because he go to the other church and he pay tithe. Are he still a member of that church? He don't go there no more." Well, it's a good question. Um, It depends on how that church views and handles membership. 
Um, most churches, unfortunately, in our day, membership is really cheap. It's not well-defined. Uh, what you have to do to become a member is uh, many times um, very loosely defined. And so if you say, I want to join the church, people go down front or whatever they do, or they sign a card or they meet the pastor, and okay, you're a member. Well, in the New Testament, to be a, a member of the local church, the local assembly, you had to be a member of the universal church, the body of Christ. In other words, you have to first be born again before you are received as a, uh, as a member of a local assembly. And so most churches, community Bible churches, no different, have two requirements for a person to become a member. One is that they've been converted, and number two is that they've been baptized since their conversion. And really, those are the only two requirements that you see in the New Testament because those are evidences of new life. A person has to be able to at least articulate in some respect what the gospel is. If you ask a person how to get saved and they say, well, you're a good person and you go to church and you try your hardest, then you know they're not. You're not judging them. That's a judgment God has made. So one, you explore what, is it, what do they believe about God and about salvation. And many times people come for membership because God's at work in their hearts and what they really need is salvation. And, and if a church is sensitive and, and uh, doing what God's called them to do, then they'll share the gospel with that person. And if they receive Christ, then they invite that person to confess it through baptism and to become a part of that local fellowship. So the, the word member is such, except maybe loosely in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about, um, you know, we're members of one another, and uh, he compares the, uh, the physical body to the spiritual bodies, just as we have all these different parts of our body that are members of the body, so we're members of, you know, of the body of Christ, and in the context, he's using it in a local church realm, but... But in, in the broadest sense, membership is not a word that you really find in the Bible any more than you find the word Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the concept that God is one who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is clearly taught in the Word of God. And so we come up sometimes with terms to describe biblical truths. Um, and so the idea of being committed to a local fellowship of believers based on the fact that you've been saved and you've been willing to openly identify with, uh, of that conversion with baptism, that concept is plainly taught. Now, some churches, they will recognize, yes, those are like non-negotiable commitments, uh, decisions one must make to be a member of our church, and then they're put on the list and they're never taken off. Um, and that's unfortunate because membership, the idea is a concept of commitment to a local fellowship of Christians. And so someone called me one day and I said, I hadn't seen you in a while. And they said, yeah, you know, we've been going to church over in Hilton Head. We just got tired of kind of driving all the way over to Beaufort. And I said, well, I understand. And by the way, we do now have a, a, a new church branch that is opening this Sunday right before the Hilton Head Bridge across from Moss Creek um, in the Island Jumpers building. Uh, Community Bible Church will share that with Island Jumpers. And so 
Island Playground, I think it's called. Yeah, thank you, Rick. Um, and so that opens this Sunday. We're moving from Two Coastal Drive to this larger location. So people who are on Hilton Head who don't have a church home who are looking, I invite you to come this Sunday and participate with us. But um, if someone, you know, stops coming and I said, well, we're, I said, well, have you joined another church? And they said, no. I said, well, you haven't been around for, you know, eight, nine months now. And I said, we're just going to go ahead and take your, your name off of our membership list. And, you know, I hope you'll come back if the Lord leads you, but we're going to ahead and take your name off. Oh, but pastor, I, I, you know, I haven't moved my membership. I said, well, you know, when, when you join a church, we'll, we'll send a letter that you're in, you know, good care, uh, in when you left this church and in, 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 in fellowship with this saint with not under church discipline, but we're going to remove your name. Oh, but I don't want my name removed. I, I want to, I want to stay a member of community Bible church. Well, you see, he missed it. He didn't get it. Membership is not a name on a list. Membership is a commitment to a local fellowship. And so if your friend has stopped being committed to that fellowship that he was attending, is now attending a new church and tithing to it, assuming that's a Bible-believing church, then he ought to just join that church. And as a courtesy to his old church, they would write for his letter. Um, but his idea, well, I, you know, my grandmother and my mother and my brothers have always been in this church, and so I want to have my name on that list. That's just silly. That's just silly, um, and it's unscriptural, and he needs to join the church that he's giving his time, talent, and treasure to. I remember uh, American Express, I think it was, used to have the slogan, membership has its privilege. That's right. church membership does. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Hey, I'm doing my Bible study this morning, and um, I came across— um, it was Acts nine, thirty six through forty three, and it's the uh, it's where um, Lady Dorcas is actually seems like she was raised from the dead by Peter. Um, but all my Bible studies and <clears throat> all through the years, you know, we hear about Lazarus and sermons preached on Lazarus, but I've never heard of sermon preached on Dorcas or even heard that much about her. Um, can you kind of explain who she is and you know why maybe not? It seemed like a pretty important part of uh, the Bible. Well, it is an important part um, because you see the Apostle Peter and you will see the Apostle Paul also raise someone from a dead doing very similar types of of miracles. And it's not by accident because, you know, the Lord Jesus made some promises uh, to his apostles that that they're going to see some, you know, supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles that would uh, be done... um, by them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to authenticate them as men of God. So it's unfortunate you've never heard a sermon on it, and probably one of the reasons is because more and more the church has abandoned expository preaching, where you preach through a passage of Scripture, and typically I think the healthiest form of expository preaching is not just when you preach through a text, but when you preach through entire books of the Bible. So I preached all the way through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter by chapter. And so if you go to searchthescriptures.org, click on the book of Acts, and then click on chapter 9, you'll see I preached three or four different sermons out of chapter 9, and you'll be able to see my sermon that deals with this portion of Scripture. Now there in Joppa was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which 
is the uh, Hebrew or Aramaic name, but in Greek, she's called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. What a, what a great lady. She was just known in the church for her concrete expressions of, of love and care. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they got it all prepared for burial. They laid it in the upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men entreating him, do not delay, come to us. And Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room and all the windows, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. So here's a lady, she just served the saints, probably had the gift of serving. You know, she, she made little garments for the other women to, to enjoy the warmth of and, uh, you know, just cared for people, all kinds of acts and deeds. She reminds me a lot of my um, wife's grandmother. Uh, Mrs. Hill was a great lady. And, you know, usually when you go to the funeral of an elderly person, uh, it's very small. Um, you know, unless they have a very large extended family. Um, but even then a lot of family members often just don't show up. Um, but at her funeral there, the church, you know, had 350 people and they were coming out the back. The place was absolutely packed. And I met people that day and said, oh, you know, she was the most wonderful lady. She would come and she would bring me these pound cakes when I was sick. And she'd do this and she'd do that. And I thought, that's a Dorcas all over again. Um, But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And of course, it was a miracle. And it was a miracle that uh, people don't do today. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that there were certain signs, wonders, and miracles that only apostles could do. And so God authenticated uh, his messenger by the miraculous. And um, it's not that God can't do miracles today, but it's only been in the great highlights of biblical history that God did miracles through people. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of the patriarchs ever did a miracle. The first person to do a miracle in the Bible was Moses, where God did a miracle through him. And then Joshua for a short time, hundreds of years went by, Elijah and Elisha did them. None of the minor or major prophets ever did a miracle. And then God comes on the scene through Christ and the apostles. So some people would say, well, miracles are normative. It's just our lack of faith today. And God still does miracles through people. No, he doesn't. Uh, God may still do a miracle, but he doesn't do them through people. He only does them on the great crescendos of spiritual history. And he's going to do it again during the time of the great tribulation period through two witnesses. But you might want to listen to, I have an hour long sermon on this. So um, you can go and hear the sermon uh, in in the Acts series. And that's the great thing. If If you're coming across a passage of scripture that you're struggling with, and I've preached through, I think, 27 books of the, of the Bible so far since I've been here at Community Bible Church for 23, 24 years. Um, a lot of those books are online. You can click on the book and then the chapter and then the text and you can hear it. And, you know, I spend 20, 25 hours, sometimes 30 hours like last week uh, preparing for a message. So I take God's word seriously and I'm not going to skip over it. 
And I'm going to try to, by the grace of God, explain it and expound it as accurately and as clearly as I can. Let's go to the next caller. All right. We do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. How you, how you doing, everybody? Doing well. Um, thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question that has to do, I got two uh, two parts. One is it has to do with the rapture, and I was curious on your view on that. And I was reading a book, and it was written by a Calvinist, and they were talking about how, you know, Israel, and um, there's no special blessing for Israel no more, how the church is now get, received the blessing for Israel. And that's one of the points that we're talking about when it comes to how they didn't believe in a pre-tribunate, a pre-trib um, rapture. Right. So I wanted to ask your points on that. And I think I heard you before talk about how um, Israel still is, is is God's people. I believe that was you who yes. talked about it. I'm not too sure. It yeah, was. Because I, 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 believe, I believe that too. And the other part was I was curious about um, your um, searchofscripture.org courses. I heard you say some speak on that today, and I was curious on those. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, We have a toll-free number for Search the Scriptures that sometimes people will call. It's 877-STS for Search the Scriptures, 877-STS-7478. And uh, if you call there, sometimes you'll get a live person. Sometimes you'll get an answering machine, but they'll call you back. Uh, We do have a course of study called the Institute for Biblical Studies. And it's, a, it's an equivalent to a, a 30-hour Bible certificate, but it is taught on a master's level. So, um, you know, sometimes you can go to a Bible college and somebody says, well, I don't want to, after high school, go through four years of a Bible college, but I'd like to get a one-year Bible certificate, uh, which is usually about uh, an equivalent of what they call 30 course hours. Um, we, we offer that through the Institute of Biblical Studies that we've created here, but we don't teach it on a college level, but a master's level. So it's very, very in-depth, extremely in-depth. Um, and it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it's for someone who really says, I want to know and study God's word. And, and, you know, we take it step by step and we, we've not done all the courses, but we've done a number of courses like the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, uh, the doctrine of last times, eschatology, uh, and so on and so forth. And it, it's very, very helpful. And they can give you all the details in terms of how to be a part of that. Um, no, I do believe that God has a place for Israel. In fact, uh, if you go online today at communitybiblechurch.org, you can click on Sunday's sermon, and I begin to deal with this very issue. We're preaching through the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11 right now, and that's the national section. It deals with the subject of Israel, that uh, God is not done with the people of Israel. And so 9, 10, and 11 is not a parenthesis in, in the book of Romans, a little aside that Paul is off on. It's actually part of the argument of the book. He ends chapter 8 by reminding us nothing can separate us from God's eternal love. And, of course, the obvious question a thinking person in that day would have, well, if God said he loved Israel with an everlasting love, then how on earth is it that they are in apostasy today? And does that mean God has abandoned Israel and he doesn't want anything else to do with them anymore? And of course, no, that's not the case. 
Uh, God loved Israel with an everlasting love, and he's committed to the people of Israel, and he has not abandoned Israel. And so chapter 9 deals with Israel's election, not personal election, but you see Calvin and Luther and others who thought God was done with Israel, when they approached Romans 9, they didn't see it as national election, but personal election, because God was done with that people. But it's not dealing with personal election. It's dealing with national election, how God chose them as a nation. Chapter 10 deals not with their election, but their current rejection. Why are they in unbelief? And chapter 11 with their future restoration. Uh, And so how you view Israel, if you think Israel, God's done with Israel, then it's going to affect every realm of theology. And there's some popular, you know, speakers today that, you know, like John Piper, who doesn't believe that there's any future for the people of Israel, from the nation as such, that the church is the new Israel. And so there's some popular speakers. And honestly, some guys, they just haven't thought through it. Uh, there's a lot of seminaries that just don't address some, some really critical issues that are important to uh, understanding God's word. But God's word is very, very clear. He's not done with Israel. And so if you think he is done, then you're going to put a spin on every realm of theology. And so Calvin, you know, basically took infant baptism and he compared it to circumcision. Well, you know, clearly the first generation of adults to be circumcised were, you know, male adults. But that after that, children on the eighth day. And so they said, that, so baptism, you know, in the New Testament, you find these you know, mature adults who are able to believe, be baptized, and then it must be their children after that. Well, no, it's not, because the church is not Israel. Uh, The Great Tribulation period, well, you know, that's not really going to happen. In fact, some Reformed or Replacement Theology people say it already happened in the first century. It's all in the past. There's no coming Antichrist. He's already been here. Uh, but they spiritualize the scripture and they don't understand that the time of Jacob's trouble is still yet future because when Jeremiah the prophet speaks of the time of Jacob's trouble, he connects it with uh, their future faith. And so that is still yet to happen. God is going to use the time of Jacob's trouble, what we call in the New Testament, the great tribulation period to bring the Jewish people to faith in the Lord. Israel is very important. And God said, listen, as long as the sun and the moon go up and down and the seasons are in place, I will never abandon Israel. He has a forever covenant and everlasting covenant with these people. And he made a promise in reference to the Messiah that through the Jewish people would come the savior of the world. And Jesus is a Jew. Ethnically, he came as a Jewish man. Uh, and he made a promise in reference to a piece of property. And it's an important piece of real estate because salvation history unfolds on it. The crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection took place on it. And the second coming and all the events connected to the return of the return of Messiah to the earth is centered around a piece of property called Israel. What is happening even in our day, even in the last couple of days, you know, where we have people talking about Israel and, you know, their willingness to abandon some of their own rights and property and give it to the Palestinians. These things are prophesied in the Bible. They're going to happen. We're going to have a divided Jerusalem. Why? Because the prophet Zechariah connects it to the return of Christ from heaven. But the fact that men are even speaking about it, in fact, that the fact that there's even a piece of property after 2,000 years that they can talk about it on 
is all amazing and miraculous, but it's under the hand of a sovereign God. Stick with me in Romans 9 through 11. We'll address this in great detail. We're out of time today. Hope you have a great day. May the Lord bless you.